Well, good morning, friends. Uh, if we don't know each other, I am Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. If we do, good to see you. Um, if you're joining us online, thanks for being with us today. Um, we are in a, a series where we are asking questions. Um, and one of the questions came in, why do good things happen to bad people? And I said, oh, great. That one. Because this, this is a difficult question. This is one that many people have asked over the centuries. Um, so we will, uh, we will talk about it some today, but we won't hit everything. So if you leave being like, man, Pastor Caleb forgot to say this. You're right. I did. If you come on Tuesday night, you can tell everyone about what I forgot, and it can, uh, it can benefit our Bible study together. So we're going to begin our exploration of why do bad things happen to good people in Genesis chapter 4. And we read that Adam and his wife Eve gave birth to Cain, and she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And Cain then said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. When I was a kid in Sunday school, I remember watching a Hanna-Barbera cartoon about the story of Cain and Abel. Did anyone else have Hanna-Barbera VHS Bible stories? No. Wow, okay, a few of you. Yes, okay, yeah. Um, and in this cartoon, it portrayed Cain as sifting through his, his harvest and finding the crummiest fruits and vegetables he could and taking that forward as his offering. Whereas Abel was looking at all his flock and he found the most perfect lamb and he took it to the butcher and he made just the most perfect cuts and took it as his offering. And the way in Sunday school we learned that Cain had a displeasing offering and Abel had a pleasing offering was because Cain brought garbage and Abel brought his best. But that's not what we read in Genesis. Nowhere does the author of Genesis give us an indication that Cain was trying to, to short God. 
was trying to take him junk, was trying to, to do the bare minimum in giving in the offering. What, what does Genesis actually say? In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil as an offering to the Lord. Now that offering was seen as unsatisfactory, and the question becomes, why? Has Cain done something wrong here, or is there something bigger going on? If we go back a chapter to Genesis chapter 3, in verse 17, this is after Adam and Eve have consumed the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 17, God says to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Because of this, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Genesis chapter 4 describes the first bad break in human history. Cain doesn't do anything wrong in bringing his offering. The problem is that the ground is cursed. It's not that, that Cain found the crummiest plants that the ground could produce and took those to God. It's that even if he brought a state fair prize winning pumpkin... I'm wearing my pumpkin-colored shirt. It wouldn't be acceptable because the ground is cursed. Here, at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, like we are talking the very beginning of human history post-fall, we see the first person get a bad break. And what is God's response to Cain? The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, be aware, sin is crouching at your door. You know, I think a very human response, when things go wrong and we don't think we are at fault, is to feel like that justifies whatever we do next. Right? It's like when, when we have done nothing wrong and we have had some negative consequence as a result of it, it is easy for us to be like, well, then I'll do whatever I want. And here, in Genesis chapter 4, at the very beginning of human history, post-fall, God says to Cain, look, you experienced a bad break, but that doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. Bad stuff is going to happen, but we are still called to do what is right. Before we get to the question of why do bad things happen to good people, we first have to answer the question, why does bad stuff happen at all? Good people, bad people, ugly people. Sorry. 
My apologies. I took that bit too far. But anyway, why do bad things happen at all? Conceivably, there could be a world where there is no natural evil. Right? Conceivably, there could be a world where there are no earthquakes, are no tsunamis, are no forest fires. Like, conceivably, there could be a world where these, you know, natural events of life, these, these things that, that make it so that the world can change, like, conceivably, we could have a world like that. So why do we have this world and not some other world? And, and that's, that's a mystery. Like, we, we do not know. Like, ultimately, like, we don't have the capacity to have a God's eye view of all of human history and know why God chose to create a world in which things change, in which there are seasons and cycles, and not one that's static. We don't know. We don't know. But given the world that we live in, in order to have things change, in order to have seasons, in order to have cycles, there is going to be what Thomas Aquinas called natural evil. This is evil that no one is at fault for. um, And in some ways, it might not even be rightly considered evil, but it is change, and change is difficult, and change is painful. A forest fire is a great thing for the health of the forest. It's a terrible thing if you've built your house in the forest. But there is, is there are, we live in a world where things are changing, where things are growing, where things are developing, and because of that, we experience suffering as a result of it. And this story of Cain and Abel, the most important thing for us to grasp from it is recognizing that just because we've experienced a bad break doesn't mean that we can go on living in a way that isn't morally right, that isn't ethically acceptable. If you're a farmer, and in a season of drought, you lose your crops, that doesn't justify becoming a bank robber that following fall. If, if, you, are, um, if you are late for work, and your car doesn't start, that doesn't justify stealing your neighbor's car in order to get to work. If, if, if we get sick, that doesn't justify doing things that are morally impermissible. We are continually called to do what is right in spite of our circumstances. which is hard, because it's easy to be like, you know, I was dealt a bad hand, 
So whatever I do to get through it is fine. But the wisdom of Genesis, the wisdom that God gives to Cain is to do what is right because sin is crouching at our door. Here in, uh, here in a little bit, we're going to be talking about um, the story of Job. And I apologize at the very outset, trying to talk about the 40-plus chapters of Job in seven minutes is an impossible task. I will fail you miserably. But if you come on Tuesday night, we'll do better. So you should come on Tuesday night because we'll have more time to read through the whole thing together and put the pieces together. Because this is, this is a big question. This is the, the question that, that has... that has haunted us as a human race more than any other over human history. Why is there suffering in the world? What can we do about it? Why does God permit suffering? Why why don't we live in a world where suffering doesn't happen? In a... In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis uh, is writing about the loss of his wife. Um, And he writes, should an all-loving God permit me to feel this incredible sense of loss and grief? And he says the answer must be yes. That there is something about this season of loss and grief that he's experiencing that he needs. That he trusts that there is, that God has a perspective that is bigger than his. That there is something about experiencing loss and grief that is, that is doing something within Lewis to make him more of what he was created to be. But that ultimately it's a mystery. It's it's something that we don't have a wide enough perspective to fully comprehend and fully understand. But we try. We try our best to to make sense of, of the hurt and the pain and the suffering we see in this world. And sometimes, if we are lucky... In retrospect, we can look back and see how the suffering wasn't wasted. But that doesn't mean that the pain didn't happen or that it goes away. But that's the world we live in. That's the uh, the, the problem that we will continue to deal with as we work through our passages for today, that we live in a world that is changeable, a world that progresses, a world with seasons and cycles. And because of that, we experience loss. So 
So here in a moment, um, we will be uh, collecting an offering together. And um, when we think about evil and suffering, um, rarely is our first response uh, praise and worship and adoration. Right? I mean, typically it's... The nerve of that God to let bad things happen and then expect me to like worship him anyway. But I think this gets back to the question of, of Cain. You know, will we continue to do what is right even when it's hard? Will we continue to do what we are called to even when um, even when we are hurt? So in Job, we see another explanation for why bad breaks happen in the world. At the beginning of, of Job, we read that, um, that God is in heaven watching over the world in Job. Um, and... Uh, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan responds, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord then said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. And then we have about 30 chapters of Job's life going terribly, and everyone around him being like, what did you do, man? You must have done something. There's no way this happened because you didn't do something bad. And this is a response we still see, right? When the tsunami hit Japan, more than one person said, well, that must just be God's judgment on what was going on. Like, this is, this is a response that we have sometimes seen as... Uh, as understanding why bad things happen, that, that if bad things happen, surely it is because someone did something wrong or a large group of somethings have done a lot of things wrong. But Job maintains his innocence. If we move forward to, to Job chapter 27, Job says, as surely as God lives, he has denied me justice. The Almighty has made my life bitter. As long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. In other words, Job has taken God's advice to Cain. Even though his life has gone completely sideways, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, he has continued to do what is right. And yet things are still going wrong. And his friends are like, man, 
you have to have done something wrong. There's no way your life could be this miserable unless you've done something wrong. And Job says, but I haven't. I'm telling you, I'm doing what is right. I'm just having a bad break here. A lot of them. And this continues. His his friends continue to tell him, Job, you've done something wrong. Job, you've done something wrong. God steps in and says, no, Job hasn't done anything wrong. And the conversation then occurs between Job and God. Job saying, what the heck, man? Like, how is this okay? Like, why are you letting this happen to me? Like, are you not just? Are you not good? Are you not loving? In verse 40, God responds to Job saying, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord said to Job, out of the storm, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in their dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Which you have to think to Job wasn't a particularly satisfying answer. I mean, God essentially says, look, Job, if you think you have it all figured out, then fix it yourself. In other words, God is saying, I've got this. I'm looking at it from a higher perspective than you are. Believe me you're going to be okay. But man, those are hard words to hear when everything is not okay. When everything is not okay, just hearing, I've got this, it's going to be okay, is not very satisfying. We want it to be. We want to have uh, the sort of faith that says, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of suffering, I know that God is working it out for good. But that's a real challenge when everything has gone sideways. But that's, that's the hope that we have. And, and we have glimpses of it. Right? Like... Um, like, if, if you're a parent, you have experienced this at least once, where you have a child who has blown out a diaper just everywhere. It's disgusting. It's just, like, you wonder how such a small little body can produce such an enormous mess. And you put that child in the bathtub to clean them up, 
and they look at you like you have just committed the worst offense in the world. How dare you wash me up? This is wrong! How can you do this to me? The water's too hot or too cold. The soap is too soapy. But yet, if you're a parent, you don't let the kid just roll around in their filth all day. Like, we have some understanding of what it is to have more perspective than someone else and do something they don't like because it's good for them. Do something that in the moment isn't pleasant or pleasing or, or, or feel good because you know the long-term outcome is going to be positive. And we trust that when we are going through moments of hardship, that when we are suffering, that God has allowed this to happen because ultimately there is going to be something on the back end that makes it worth it. Which doesn't, it's not the same thing as like consequentialism, right? Like it's not this bad thing that happened was actually good because something good came out of it. No, the bad thing that's happening really is bad, right? Like we don't want to try and sugarcoat it and say that, well, no, 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 it's, it's actually a good thing that, um, you know, this person who I love is sick, right? That's not a good thing. But we have to trust that in the fullness of God's wisdom that there is something that is happening in this season that God is going to turn out to make everything better in the long run. Which sometimes, in the long run, we can look back and be like, man, I get it now. God really did work this out for my benefit. But when we're in the middle of it, it never feels that way. It never feels that way. And depending on where you are today, these words can sound very differently to your ears. If you're right here, you're probably saying, man, that Pastor Caleb, he doesn't know nothing. Bunch of gobbledygook good stuff coming. Yeah. But if you're over here, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that, that is what happened. Yeah. God has been gracious. God has been good. Even in the midst of this thing that was terrible at the time, a transformation happened within me that has made it so that every day after that has been better. Job ultimately would have everything that he lost restored to him. He would leave with this new picture of who God is, with this new understanding of God's faithfulness, even in the midst of hardship. 
but he still lived through it. He still lost his family and his health and everything that he had. And even getting it back doesn't take away that he went through it. He still carried the scars of that season. And we will carry the scars of the seasons that we go through as well. And once again, the the choice is laid before us. Will we use our scars to justify being selfish and doing what we want to do? Or will we continue to do what is right even when we don't want to? So ultimately, what I find to be the most comforting realization in moments of suffering and crisis is that we know a God who isn't exempt from suffering. That Jesus experienced a life of pain and difficulty and misery that ended with his torturous death on a Roman cross. That the Father suffered from us, the Son suffered for us, and the Holy Spirit suffers with us. And we see Peter writing these words. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In this life, we are promised hardship. 
If we are going to follow Jesus, one of the costs that we must count is that there is going to be hardship associated with it. Sometimes, um, like Job, we will have the spiritual forces of wickedness making our lives miserable. And sometimes we'll just find that living for Jesus means that we are living in a way that is cutting across the grain of society at large. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be difficulty living as a Christian. And Peter says, one, get over it, and two, rejoice, because you are suffering with Christ. You are experiencing the life of God. You are being invited into the life of God in a special way when you suffer for doing what is good. When you suffer for the gospel. Earlier he said, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be threatened. But in your hearts, revere Christ is Lord. If you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Boy, if that isn't countercultural to what we are led to believe as 21st century American type people. But that is what we believe as Christians. That in this life, there will be hardship and difficulty. That in this life, if we are following Jesus, that is going to put us in a place where we are persona non grata to someone who has authority and power. And if we suffer for the kingdom, if we suffer for Jesus, if we suffer for doing what is right and doing what is good, not only is that okay, we are blessed. We should rejoice at the opportunity to suffer for the kingdom. Which is a mind-boggling thing to even say. So why do bad things happen to good people? Well, in part, it's because the spiritual forces of wickedness in the world are not going to let the kingdom come without a fight. If we are about being people of the kingdom, we should expect there to be a significant level of hardship in our lives. Now, this is hardship that, that we pray that we will have the perspective and the wisdom to rejoice in the midst of, that we'll have peace in the midst of, that, that we will be able to, to rejoice and be thankful for the opportunity to suffer for the kingdom. But it'll still be hard. It'll still be painful. It'll still move us in directions that in our own flesh and in our own selfishness, we do not want to go But we can be assured that if we are living for Jesus, it will be accompanied 
with suffering. It'll be accompanied with hardship. Our lives won't be just, you know, kicking back iced tea on easy, easy street. Because the same world that rejected Jesus will reject us as well. But we trust that in the midst of it, we are not left on our own. We aren't suffering on an island, just ourselves. But that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and we have the gift of the church to endure these times together. I, uh, I have a friend who, um, who describes you know, part of the value of the church as it being like whack-a-mole, right? So like one of our head pops up, whack, another head, whack. But none of us are getting whacked at the same time, which means that we can carry each other in our burdens. That when one person has been whacked down low, the community can come around them and lift them up and remind them of the truth of the gospel, that even being whacked isn't going to be the end of us because the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives gives us the power to endure. And this is good news for us. Like, this is, this is part of why it's so important for us to be together as the church because we get to carry one another's burdens, we don't suffer alone. We have a community and a family to come around us and carry us and hold us and love us and remind us of the good news, that the tomb is empty, that this, this momentary trouble that we are in has already been defeated ultimately through Jesus' work on the cross, that all of this is going to bring about the kingdom of God in its fullness. And we can take joy in that so that we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, even when it seems like we've been dealt a bad hand, blown a bad break, and things are going sideways. Let's pray. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that we do not suffer alone, but that your spirit suffers with us, that you have given us the church to surround us and hold us up in the midst of our pain and sorrow. Lord, for those times when we want to do what is wrong because we are hurting, we pray for your strength to do what is right. For those times when we want to shake our fist at you because life isn't going the way we thought it would, Lord, we pray that your spirit would comfort us and we would be reminded that your perspective is greater than ours that even these moments of pain, while bad, while painful, 
while real, are not going to be wasted, but that you are working in them even now to draw us nearer to you, to transform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, for that we give you thanks. Father, we are your children. So Lord, with the confidence of your children, we pray the way that your son Jesus taught us. Saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would please rise uh, to sing our final hymn and one of the truly great ones, number 467, Trust and Obey.